0: DIAL. ROUND. THE. ARCHIVES. When on the internet, that's what you do to call a podcast. I know. I'm a podcaster from Dorset attached to my sofa. My name's Andrew Trowbridge. I'm Andrew.
1: Hello, I'm Lisa.
0: Welcome to episode 58 of...
1: Rounding Archives.
0: Well, lots to fit in, so let's get a shift on. Mm -hmm. First of all, here's the summer winos making a return. So Bob Fisher and Andrew T. Smith will tell us about their new book on... Last of the Summer
1: Wine. (laughs)
2: It's the summer winos here, so that would be me, Bob Fisher. And me,
3: Andrew T. Smith. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. Yes, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I mean, I was talking to the listeners, but, you know, I'll talk to you.
2: All right, are we doing it that way, are we? Well, (laughs) I should be pretending (laughs) there are people listening to us. We're sitting in separate rooms here, uh, as as government guidelines specify. Uh, I've seen you
3: for a while in the flesh. I mean, are you keeping well? Um, as well as can be expected to be honest sure. uh, yeah um, um retreating yeah. to the uh to the mental um refuge that is homeforth right. yeah, no, it
2: it's our happy place isn't it it's our, it is, it's our yes. mind palace is since <laughs> calf in homeforth so we should probably explain i mean we've been on round the archives before and i think we chunted on for about Forty-five minutes, then we probably. Yeah, we'll we'll,
3: we'll 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 try and keep it to a brisk forty-three today. I think exactly. Yes, yeah, we'll knock at least five
2: minutes off that. <laughs> um, so uh, basically, uh, we are two fans of Last of the Summer Wine, and is it is it ten years ago?
3: It would be about ten years ago. Yeah, that we started on this journey um you towards it, <laughs> towards where we find ourselves today yeah quest. about 10 years ago um as last of the summer wine was coming to its end on television i suggested to bob uh, you know wouldn't it be a nice thing to do to sit down and watch all 295 episodes of last of the summer wine in order i thought you meant on the same weekend <laughs> but we're still going we're still going yeah well we've, we've we've managed to find a schedule where we're watching it pretty much at the same rate they were making it
2: I think we're <laughs> slightly slower than the rate at which it was first broadcast I think we're actually which has- behind a little bit
3: it, it has no uh, bearing on how much we're enjoying the process. No. We're just incredibly slow when it comes up to writing our thoughts about it. Because oh, <laughs> what, what we said we'd do is, you know, we'd, we'd watch it, but we'd also, um, you know, blog our thoughts about it as we go along. Yeah. Just be a bit of fun. And that has, it's safe to say, um, snowballed over the last 10 years.
2: Just a bit, yeah. So um, the, uh, the blog itself is still there. It's summerwynose.co.uk. Cheap plug. Nice one. But, I mean, like, two years ago, no, it's only three years ago, isn't it? it? It turned into an Edinburgh Fringe show. We went and did it live on stage in Edinburgh. Well, I say on stage. It was in the back room of Edinburgh's premier punk rock and heavy metal bar. Where better. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but we did it there for a week and it was fantastic. Uh, it was like us on stage, dressed as Compo and Clegg, uh, explaining why Last of the Summer Wine is so brilliant and why we love it so much. And then we did yeah, it.
3: Yeah, making a case for its sort of place as a. It- document of social history uh, in trying to convince an international audience of very confused looking people in Edinburgh. (laughs) Some of them quite
2: frankly had just come in because it was raining (laughs) Um, but um, we took it on tour around the UK in 2019. I'm losing track (laughs) of the years now. It was 2019 wasn't it? It was yeah. 2020 Um, and that seemed to go all right as well. So we've now turned it into a book. So the first (laughs) Summer Winos book is out now uh, just called summer winos volume One, volume one, one. Uh, yeah, volume one <laughs> possibly optimistically called volume one um <laughs> 1973 to 1978 so essentially uh, what we've done we've we've taken the blog which was us going through the series episode by episode and overthinking it slightly and we've expanded on that enormously to make a book out of it so i think i for the, yeah. the early days of the blog we 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 used to write about 500 words, didn't we, for every episode, which is paltry. It's pathetic.
3: How on earth did you get away (laughs) with that? Um, yeah I think I, it's again it's safe to say uh, we're not overthinking it slightly anymore <laughs>
2: think, yeah, we're overthinking
3: it enormously
2: because um, <laughs> we've expanded uh, our write-ups for every episode to about four or five times that length for the book so' it's a, I wish I could show this to you but it's a huge it's, chunky book it's um, it's the
3: non-fiction equivalent of a paperback novel basically isn't it, it yeah quite all uh, about our obsession with last of the summer Wine. yeah
2: so we've done the first five years of it it's the first four series so so it's kind of like our analysis of every episode, but peppered with absolutely tons of, um, sort of like previously unearthed trivia. Uh, we've got loads of audience feedback from the 70s, reviews from the 1970s, from newspapers, um, bits and pieces that other people have spotted in Last of the Summer Wine that we hadn't, um, because we've got this little... Let's, let's call it a community, shall we, of, um, yes, of yeah. dedicated followers uh, on the blog and on social media that have pointed this stuff out to us. So uh, we're both really, really proud of this book. And we thought for the purposes of Round the Archives, what we do is is pick out like some of our favourite things that we've uncovered in the course of doing uh, Summer Wynow's book, Volume 1, 1973 to 1978. Um, so, do you want to do want to dig in first, Andrew? What's what's your favourite thing to have to have uncovered?
3: Yeah, well, I think when we when we first set out and said, "Okay, we're going to watch this through," it was just a piece of fun, uh, but it quickly became apparent just how much depth there was to this show and how much there was to to talk about.
2: Yeah, um, it
3: is quite a remarkable series in that sense—not just for a sitcom, just for any British series. Um, And also going back to the very beginning, realizing just how different the show was when it set out Mm. to what it became by the time, you know, I was watching in the 90s or even when you were watching it in the 80s. And, you know, a a big, a big part of that is during the first two years of the series, uh, we have a lead character who's gone a little bit forgotten, I suppose, in, in terms of the popular culture. Uh, memory of last of the summer wine when you think of the show you think of combo clegg and foggy is the defining image or possibly combo clegg and seymour or even you know combo clegg and truly where uh, in the later years of the show but to begin with you did have michael bates as as And his character, as I say, was, you know, a bit of a bit of a revelation. I hadn't seen those early years of the show properly. I dipped in and out, but I really wasn't familiar with who this character was. Um, And I think in, in keeping with the tone of the early years of the show, I think Blameyer is more real than any of the third men to follow mm-hmm. in that, you know, he's still the same com- of the same kind of commanding mold as, as Foggy or Seymour. He still bosses Combo around. He's still the leader figure, but he's very grounded. You can easily imagine him being sort of a mate of your daddy or your granddad. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a bloke who lives a real life. Yeah, he's not completely. prone to the same flights of fancy as the other characters that you later think- meet.
2: We point this out in the book, don't we? That like when you when Foggy comes in in series three, it's made mm. like really clear that Foggy's memories of being in the army and of being this kind of like trained assassin, this silent killer, are a complete <laughs> fantasy. He's a, he's a Walter Mitty figure. Uh Bleu-Meyer has similar stories, to be honest. You know of having served uh, during the war in Burma, but he um, believed them and, and, and <laughs> set up. Camp in jungle swamps, uh, but unlike Foggy, it, 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 they're never contradicted. Uh, Compo no. and Clegg never call him up on them, so I have to assume that that Blemeier's stories of his his military heroism are all absolutely true. And uh, you know, he's quite a he's quite a formidable figure, Cyril mm-hmm. Blaymer. He's definitely not to be messed with. I don't think. No, not, not. In the way that you could, you know, they, they, they take the mickey out of Foggy and Seymour. But Not so much Blameyer, I don't think. He's, he's much more of a stern figure.
3: Yeah, and I, and I think Michael Bates, who plays the character, is just superb in the role. Hmm. He really is. And I think that's, that's something that really hits home when you think that at this time on British television, he was known for being in two. Sitcoms. He was in Last of the Summer Wine and he was in It Ain't Off Fock Mum yeah. in which he plays uh, Ranji Ram yeah. who happens to be an Indian character and we won't get into the the whys and wherefores and the morality of that. We do but, a little
2: bit in the book but uh, you know, there's a fact that he did do that.
3: Yeah, and I think if you were a casual viewer watching those two series repeated back to back I don't think you would ever suspect that was the same actor. No. I think those characters are so so completely different and they are you know an incredible testament to the talent that they had
2: yeah completely because you you pick out don't you a moment that you think is just like a, a, absolutely epitomises the attention to detail of Michael Bates. Is it when they're yeah. walking past the cafe in one episode?
3: Yeah, this this it's a tiny moment in uh, Pate and chips in the first series, I believe. Yeah. Um, and the trio, you know, Compo, Clegg, Blairmire, just walking down towards the cafe. It's a scene shot on location on film in Homeforth, and the church bells chime, and blameyer checks his watch, and it's a tiny moment. Yeah. But that's either really fine improv on the part of an actor reacting to the situation or some good dubbing. And I can't yes. imagine that the BBC Radiophonic Workshop went anywhere near Last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> so I'm going to put it down to really nice, really nice bit of acting there. So basically, the
2: church, the church bells went off as they were walking past, and Bates thought, I'll check, you know, I'll go check my watch against them.
3: Yeah, and I, I don't is. think it's just Bates checking his watch. I think he is thinking about the character. I do, I do I think it shows be. immersion in the character, yeah, because yeah. Blair is regimented and organised, and of course he's going to check his watch at yes. the church bell's chime, just as a matter of routine, you know? That's just what he will do. Um, and yeah, that is just a tiny, tiny little moment, but I think it is the moment that really does... Suggest just how much Michael Bates was putting into the part. Yeah, which kind of um, leads
2: us into into something something that I wanted to bring up. And it's going, kind of, you know, this is this is this is my nomination, um, which is I think Blaymer epitomizes the kind of bleakness. Is possibly the wrong word because he's not a bleak character. Although he is a tragic character in some ways, um, but there's a kind of there's a kind of grottiness to the early series of last of the summer wine that mm-hmm. i don't think is present as much as the series trundles along and it's very much it's it's the york it's the it's the post industrial yorkshire that we see in the early series of last of the summer wine so the, yeah. the buildings are kind of covered in soot it's quite a grimy looking home
3: for which i think that's why it was chosen isn't it it wasn't chosen because it was picturesque yeah it was absolutely chosen because it was on the bare bones of its arse it was you know it appeared in a a documentary fronted by barry took yes uh, just before the series was created yes um, in which he was visiting sort of working men's clubs and seeing how people occupied their time yeah um and that documentary does show Holmfirth as a town, you know, really struggling. So you know, it's a kind of working-class
2: in- town with um, a kind of you know a, a working men's club with um, uh, shall we say traditional working men's comics on stage and yes, um, yeah, it's it's, tra- it's, it's it's a slightly down-at-heel working-class Yorkshire yeah, town.
3: Yeah, because the industries are are you know very quickly vanishing from the yeah. area. So you've got working-class population and no work yeah um and so that's why the series was picked it wasn't because it was this lovely picturesque little town mm. that it becomes and is today uh it was chosen for its grimness as you say
2: because uh, it's an episode isn't there it's, it's called the changing face of rural blemire mm-hmm. um well, well, basically i mean the premise of the episode is that blemire decides he wants a job because uh, again that's another thing we point out in the book that these aren't People think Last of the Summer Wine is about old retired people, and the point of it, certainly in the early years, that these are all these are men in their fifties, yeah, who've just been—they're not retired; they've been—they've been made redundant. Yeah,
3: they've uh, they, been cast aside.
2: Yeah, they're kind of society's misfits. So Blaymey decides that he wants to have a job in this episode. But there's a really telling scene right at the start of that episode where the three of them are, are sitting looking out over the countryside. Mm. um and i think is it compo is it's kind of waxing lyrical about how nice it is and how lovely it looks And um, mm-hmm. Blameyer basically says i get our factories all over this what's the yeah. point in having like glorious countryside
3: <laughs> when everybody's yes. out of
2: work I'd, you know i'll build mills and factories all over it um, yeah and i think that's kind of where we are uh, in 1970s Yorkshire when Last of the Summer Wine starts, and it's very much a reflection of all of that. But it's also worth bearing in mind, I think, when when you watch those early episodes, again, you know, you think of Last of the Summer Wine as being so, uh, Sunday tea time, you yeah. know, like half past six, seven o'clock on a Sunday tea it, time. So sort of,
3: between Songs of Praise and yeah. the Antiques Roadshow, and uh, amongst all of those kind of cosy sunday middle class bbc programs
2: completely yeah. but uh, you know the early series which we were i mean there, there are there are some references and the language in the early series mm. they kind of raised i mean we're, we're men of the world andrew but our eyebrows <laughs> were raised i think from time to time but then you look at it and you think well actually you know i'm looking at series one here which went out on monday nights 25 past nine on monday nights it was a mm. post watershed comedy for the first few years. And it very much reflects that,
3: I think. And with that in mind, I'd like to talk to you about my next selection, Go which on. is WAC, Bob. Can whack. we talk about WAC? We've got
2: these all the way through the book, haven't we? The, the word from the WAC.
3: Yes, the word from the WAC, which in this case, uh, WAC stands for the Written Archive Centre, yeah. which is a resource that the BBC has uh, where they collect all of the paperwork and documents relating to, to various shows they have. And one of the things that we're fortunate to have access to in the case of Last of the Summer Wine are audience research reports. Um, And that's where BBC would basically collect a sample of the viewing population and give them questionnaires to find out how different programmes were being perceived. And so we do have sort of an overview of what the British public thought of Last of the Summer Wine as it was going out for the first time.
2: And it's fascinating.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, talking about um, so sort of the grimness, um, yeah, I'd I'd like to uh, quote from uh, the the archive report, uh, the audience report for Shortback and Palais Glide. Sure, i have got I'm trying to find it in the book here. What, is, what <laughs> have you picked out? Well, first of all, fourteen point three percent of the UK population were watching. Right. which is remarkable. Um, 185 questionnaires were, were gathered together to judge this response. Yeah. And generally, the show was very well received. You know, It was, it was noted for having really true-to-life characters, a good down-to-earth phone, a right good laugh. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the, the comments I'd like to pick out, and I'll try my, my best points of view voice here to, to quote. I think the series would be much better and still funny if the script was kept cleaner, some dirty marks which I detest. <laughs> and, and to quote a second one, just to prove that isn't an isolated incident. Very common, revolting looking men. Hope this is the last. Which <laughs> We should point out, so these,
2: these are audience reaction comments from series one, episode one. Yes. <laughs> I mean, talk about giving it a chance. <laughs> I love as well, I'm trying to find it here. Because um, uh, so, we we picked out some newspaper um, reviews <laughs> as well. Um, you diligently trolled uh, local newspaper archives to find contemporary reviews. Um, this is the one that I love. Um, so this is from, uh, it's from the Birmingham Daily Post. It's the 5th of January, 1973. So this is after the pilot episode. This is the pilot episode. And it's Ter- Terry Metcalf in the Birmingham Daily Post. It was a lovely little interlude, this tale of three old men, totally unlike but bound together by their loneliness and uselessness who spend their days plaguing the life out of the local librarian. Hardly enough material for a full series? Unfortunately, I think not. <laughs> if only
3: he knew. <laughs>
2: <laughs> another, for another 37 years after that. Everyone's a critic, aren't they? Especially, especially critics.
3: Um, what else, if you find anything else? Um, well, uh, we could talk about fertiliser. Oh, God, right, okay.
2: Because... <laughs> One of the things we try to do with the book is, I mean, obviously it is a book about Last of the Summer Wine, uh, but we try and tie that in with some of our own memories of watching it as well and, and you know, and, and being around our families at the time. Because I think, you know, for a lot of people, it was a programme that they watched with mums and dads and granddads and what have you. Um, and I just love this one. So this is, it's the episode... Um, it's Jubilee, isn't
3: it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh,
2: which is series four, um, and it's it's quite an unusual episode, and it's actually tied into a specific date. It's it's tied in with with uh, you know Silver Jubilee week in June 1977, <laughs> um, and it's foggy by this day, so it's uh, Compo Clegg and Foggy like volunteer to help um, at, at the local Jubilee parade, and they go around to the vicarage. And the vicar's wife, who, uh, as an aside, is, is played by Jane Wenham, who in the 1950s was married to Albert Finney. I don't know why I like <laughs> that in at every possible opportunity, but I do. Uh, but uh, the vicar's wife comes out. And it took, I must have seen this episode half a dozen times before I got the joke. But she she keeps saying uh, the vicar is busy with a fertilizer representative. He was very specific about that, a fertiliser representative. So what's the significance of that? Uh, It suddenly struck me. It's a bullshit merchant. Yep. (laughs) That is is Roy Clark, putting a (laughs) bullshit merchant into his script. Um, It's a nice
3: gentle comedy.
2: Exactly. But as an example of, of kind of how we've tied in our own family life with the book, that sparked you off onto a story which I love.
3: Yeah, just just thinking of you know a fertilizer representative uh, reminded me of um, when I was a kid. Uh, my nana had a, a run in with with one such fertilizer representative uh, knocking so you know, door to door selling what I presume was horse shit rather than bullshit. <laughs> like a
2: genuine fertilizer representative.
3: <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and she was under the impression she was paying for two kilograms of manure to go on the roses in the garden, and the next day two tons of the stuff was dumped in the front yard and it just it's, it's one of those things that even now I can smell it if I think about it it's the, the image of this stuff lingering around for, for weeks and weeks you know various family members would come and you know with a shovel and take some away from their garden trying to be helpful this is a sick but, episode in its own right it's one foot in the grave surely <laughs> I think it was enough to smother the roses rather than encourage any growth.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, the one I kind of I picked out, because, um, again, it's just something in Master Summer Wine that made me think of, like, my own family. Now, I, th- I think I'm all right mentioning this th- nearly 40 years on, but there's a scene in, uh, it's in A Merry heatwave, Wave, mm. uh, which is, um, <laughs> it's, it's, one of, it's one of Roy Clark's Christmas episodes. <laughs> where nobody likes Christmas.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's a theme that emerges very quickly, (laughs) that Roy Clark does not care for Christmas.
0: Didn't we
2: ask him? We asked him why all of his Christmas episodes were about how terrible Christmas is. And he just, we met him a few years ago and he was brilliant. And he just, he looked at us and he said, well, it's the most miserable time of year, isn't it? <laughs> and you can absolutely see it in all of his Christmas episodes. Yes. So, so, a merry heat wave isn't even set at Christmas. It's, uh, it's, it's them trying to construct a false Christmas.
3: For a dying man.
2: <laughs> yeah, to, to film uh, for Nora Batty's brother, who's in Australia, and he's dying. Um, mm-hmm. So they kind of construct this false Christmas for him in the in the middle of a, a, an August heat wave. Um, but anyway, so uh, the, the, the upshot of all of this is that Sid has got a huge Christmas tree in the cafe. And, um, and basically the suggestion is that he's nicked it, that he's gone down to his local forestry commission with a saw and come back <laughs> with it. And I, he claims to Ivy, doesn't he, that he's stuck a pound note on an on a adjoining branch. Yeah. But he says so with a twinkle in his eye. And that just reminded me there was there was one Christmas and and it's about 1983, 84, where um, basically I was kicking up a stink at home because we didn't have a real Christmas tree. We had this tatty Woolworths Christmas tree that had been there for decades. It it had been there since the three day week Um, (laughs) and it was falling to bits. And I was like, can we get a real Christmas tree? Everybody on the telly has got a real Christmas tree. But, you know, it was the 80s and we didn't have much money. Both of my parents were in and out of work an awful lot in the 1980s. But my dad, clearly inspired by this, and this is literally, it's like less than a week before Christmas. Um, he, he, He went out to walk the dogs in the woods near our house. (laughs) <laughs> and came back with a I just literally turned up at the back door with a Christmas tree that it would not have looked out of place in Trafalgar Square. It was extraordinary. I st- st- stuck, it, stuck it in the front room and said, there you go, a real Christmas tree. <laughs> and my mother said, where'd you get that from? And he said, found it. And then he went and put his saw back in the garage. Um, <laughs> so all, all of that is there's loads of stuff like that in the book of how last the summer wine again, but again, you know, a reflection of, of British society at the time. I think you know it was yeah, it was absolutely. the nineteen seventies. You had to be resourceful. <laughs> um, the nineteen eighties. You had to be resourceful. Um, so and I, I, I kind of again sort of linking into to all of this stuff. Joe Gladwin. We were yes. the, like you know joe gladwin who in many ways is the kind of he's the epitome of the miserable granddad or the miserable <laughs> older relative that lots of us have but uh, joe gladwin who played wally batty has become a real he's become iconic for the pair of us hasn't he
3: yeah it's the cult of wally batty continues to grow <laughs> with each appearance he makes um and uh, yeah it's he's, he is He's a character. He he doesn't appear in the pilot episode. He doesn't appear in the first series at all. But as soon as he does arrive on the scene, we just fell in love, Yeah, I think. And he's just quickly woven into the fabric of the show. Um, he doesn't have this effect on everyone. Uh, for his first, for, for the episode in which he makes his first appearance, uh, my partner Emma was joining us for that episode just He's in the experiment. Box, yeah, we
2: wrote up her replies and her responses to it. Yeah, she's, she's, and she, she just can't understand us at all, can not she?
3: No. And when it came to Wally Batty, she just said, you know, she described him, I think, as a bit meh, you know, boring. That's all he does. He goes. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's why we like him yeah I think I think Wally Batty ventures so far into the territory of boring that he emerges from the other side as one of the great characters of British sitcom <laughs> uh, really? he, is, he is unique
2: yeah, it's an extraordinary performance, and, and and again, like we you know, we've we've talked about this, it's it. we, we did it in the live show, but we've put it in the book as well. Um, Joe Gladwin like drew on <laughs> I think he said centuries of experience there. It, <laughs> looks, it looks like it. <laughs> Joe, Joe Gladwin drew on decades of experience because he'd been a performer since just after the first world war, which is mm-hmm. extraordinary. It's you know, the bloke who was still acting on TV in the
3: 1980s. Yeah, but, but his background his was variety.
2: Yeah, it, it began his career as a, as a basically a variety performer. In the aftermath mm. of the First World War, um, he was like a stooge, basically, wasn't he? He'd he do a strongman act where he'd dress up in a yes,
3: boycott. yeah, basically his, his, part of his act was yeah, he'd appear as the world's strongest man, <laughs> and Adwin. he. he He'd end up collapsing on stage, obviously, because he's a spelk, um, and then be carted off. And then at the end of the show, as the audience would leave into the lobby, they'd see Joe Gladwin being loaded on a stretcher into a local ambulance that they'd somehow get get a hold of. <laughs> the last gag on the way out of the show. <laughs>
2: um, it, it's just a phenomenal performance all the way through. Um, um, I just I, nobody has made hangdog misery more funny than Joe Gladwin.
3: Well. No, and, it, and he's absolutely not just a character but a face you do not get on British television anymore. I think that he's, he's so lived in, you know, he, 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 you know he's, he's the equivalent of, I don't know, like an old stately home, but a really knackered <laughs> one. He's that lived in, uh, you know, and if you just got away
2: you, by yourself. shelves, then I will be in <laughs> already
3: Sorry, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
2: do you know should we put out our appeal here because we, we are genuinely we would love to find um any descendants any surviving family members of joe gladwin i think, or I think just people need, who knew him well yeah I, I think we need to keep saying this at every opportunity we cannot find we, we've tried a few different routes we cannot find any of joe gladwin's family anywhere uh, we don't know if uh, if he ever had children or not we can't find any evidence that he did um I bless him. We've even been to visit his graveside, haven't
3: we? And when we played uh, Oldham, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Show, um, um, we could... And we know we know certain things about his life. He led yeah. obviously quite a remarkable life. Jonathan Lindsley, who played Crusher in the series, yeah. uh, got to know him rather well on location mm. um, and filled us in with some stories. Uh, we know he was a, um, a devoted Catholic. He it was a made a papal knight. Wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, he was he was a patron, I believe, or at least the supporter of his local operatic society. Right. Um, which, again, you think of Wally Batting, you don't think of Gilbert and Sullivan, particularly. <laughs> um, but but nevertheless, he was. So we know all these little things.
2: I just imagine him thinking Ness and Dorma.
3: Three little maids from school away.
2: Yes, you <laughs> do. Um, I genuinely, if, if anybody can put us in touch with any members of, of Joe Gladwin's family or anyone that just knew him well, we'd, we'd just love to share some memories of Joe and to, just to celebrate his work a little bit more because we just think he's extraordinary.
3: Yeah, summerwinos.co.uk, find us, yeah. You know, yeah. send us a message, an email, whatever.
2: Totally, If you can email us from there. Um, so shall we do a little geeky bit just to finish? Oh, go on then. Because Because we've kind of... Um, within the book so we dug out lots of little bits and pieces and uh, maybe bits of uncelebrated trivia Mm. Um, and this is one that if you google this if you google for Pete Postlethwaite Last of the Summer Wine
3: Mm. um,
2: you'll find all kinds of discussion on different forums um, and Facebook groups about this so this is um, it's the same episode actually isn't it it's a merry heat wave again yes yeah it is And at the end of the episode is a credit for Peter Postlethwaite. Um, uh, And and this is the man, lest we forget, that Steven Spielberg
3: once described as the greatest actor in the world. Well, well, Steven Spielberg had never met Joe Gladwin. So (laughs) it's Well, awful guess. Can you imagine if Steven Spielberg (laughs) could
2: cast Joe Gladwin in something?
3: (laughs) It'd be E.T. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> or, or the T Rex,
2: the Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> oh,
3: it belongs in your museum, <laughs> so do
2: you. Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> where were we? Pete Postlethwaite. <laughs> uh, Pete Postlethwaite apparently is in uh, the episode of Merry Heatwave Christmas special. Um, and we thought we'd found him because there is a, a, there's a scene in the CAF um, where Ivy basically is, is trying to get rid of a couple of customers, uh, yeah. one of whom is quite a sort of lanky-looking, lugubrious bloke, um, slightly balding, and he does bear a passing resemblance to Pete Postlethwaite, and he's got a line as well, which would be enough yeah. to earn him like a credit at the end of the episode. Um, so we were, like we were with a within a whisker of putting this to print, weren't we? The, oh, that's him. Yeah. That's Pete Postlethwaite with a, with one line and an episode of Last of the Summer Wine.
3: Yeah, it was it was it was believable. It, you know, as we say, it was a passing resemblance, but you could believe that this was the man who would become, you know, the guy you'd seen in off. Yeah. Just obviously in between I, I did, had a very I, rough paper round. <laughs> I
2: didn't think <need> Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, um, so we were just going ready to commit this to print because there's nobody else in the episode that looks remotely like Pete Postlethwaite. So, well, that's him. That's because that's, he would have been about 29, I think, when the episode mm. was filled or something like that. You know, he was, a, he was a young man. So,
3: well, that's him. That's Pete Postlethwaite.
2: And then um, I think, was it, was it David Brunt?
3: David Brunt, our go-to guru for uh, anything archive-related. Who is
2: just a brilliant TV historian, enthusiast, researcher, who kind of piped up and said, I'm not sure it is, you know. I think
3: it's... I think he was um, putting it gently. He was actually saying, you morons. <laughs> no, of course it's not Pete yeah, it's not possible it. Possible.
2: it does look like Pete <laughs> Um, But it's an article. it Andrew Lane. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I think is 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 the actor. And he sent us I mean, he he said, check out episodes of uh, All Creatures Great and Small in particular. uh, Andrew Lane uh, plays a barman in All Creatures Great and Small. And he does. He he looks. It's definitely him. He looks he just he looks just as much like the bloke in the calf as Pete Postlethwaite does. (laughs) Uh, And he is credited as well as Pete Possible play on the end of that episode of Last of Us. Yeah, this, and
3: obviously there is no other part that Andrew Lane could have been playing in that episode yeah. other than the part he is very clearly playing, yeah. which is not the part that Pete we- Possible play is playing.
2: But which leaves the conundrum so if that's Andrew Lane where the hell is Pete Postlethwaite in A Merry Heat Wave and we went through all kinds of possibilities there's a cameraman like a wedding cameraman that you don't yeah. see that much of so is it him but he doesn't have a line so he wouldn't mm. get credit for that usually um and in the end um we we went back to the written archive didn't we um mm. and with with the assistance of David Brunt again and discovered that do we give the spoiler
3: here I, I think, yeah, let's, let's, let, right. let, let's you know, let, let's hope they buy the cow.
2: Let's sell the book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Pete Fosselthwaite, who, get a Hollywood actor, Jurassic Park, Spielberg's favourite actor in the world, and this is documented on BBC paperwork.
3: Jurassic Park 2, I feel the need to say before we get any letters.
2: Pathetic. Um, <laughs> had his scene cut from Last of the Summer Wine. Recorded yeah. recorded his scene, and the credits were made up with his name on them accordingly. But then, just before broadcast, so somewhere between the credits being made up and the program being broadcast, his scene was cut. So he's not in Last of the Summer Wine at all. We can exclusively reveal. You'll see people on forums are adamant that that it is yeah. him, um, but we've we've got the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. So that's the kind of ridiculously diligent geekery uh, <laughs> that you can find in the Summer Wino's book. There's a few other examples of that. We were determined to find the identity of the bloke who plays Louis Bickerdyke in Green Fingers who has yeah. a crucial role but is not credited anywhere. We've done that but we're not going to reveal that to you. Um, Should we, we put like a little teaser out here? Because we've we've got an absolute belter, haven't we? That we're both incredibly proud of this. And yeah, it, and like, okay, No this credit is... for it at all. <laughs>
3: This one that came to us through our through our community, yeah. um, But there is an, an actor who yeah. would go on to be part of the main cast of Last of the Summer Wine, like a who huge makes, part of
2: the series. Yeah, uh,
3: he makes uh, an unca- uncredited appearance yes. several years before he was ever actually supposedly in the show.
2: He does indeed. Like for us, this was the. I mean, our, our worlds have never been the same since, have they?
3: Yeah. <laughs> and it's 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 such a <laughs> a unplanned appearance as well it's 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 not a a big deal in terms of production
2: I think it's fair to say you've got to freeze frame it to be really sure. Yeah. which which one of our contributors was it Simon S
3: I believe it was Who yes. was it?
2: it was a contributor to the blog he posts on the blog all the time um, and said is that dot 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 on the bus in this episode, uh, you had to freeze frame it, and we still weren't sure. But again, we dug out the paperwork uh, a list of uncredited walk on artists,
3: background artists, extras. Um, I do have awesome. to, I do have to interrupt there, Bob. I've just checked our own book, which we should know back to front. It was exactly- George, <laughs> it was George Kempson, was it? Simon- Simon S, nine nine times out of ten, was the person coming to us with a comment, but it was George Kempson who found out. uh, I knew I'd get it wrong.
2: I knew I'd get it wrong at one time. I didn't check. Um, Thanks, George, and thanks, Simon. So, yeah, I haven't seen this mentioned anywhere else, but, um, yeah, one of the last of the Summer Wine regulars uh, gets an uncredited appearance in the show seven years before his first official appearance. There you go. That's the kind of forensic-level, pathetic... (laughs) sadness geekery that you can find in the summer winos book volume one 1973
3: to 1978 Yep, yeah, you can pick that up at summerwinos.co.uk via our uh, online store linky things um and if you're really keen to find out the uh the story behind that bit of trivia look on page 117 <laughs> Is that it? Are we done? That's not been 45 minutes, has it? No, it's, it's not. I think they've got off lightly, to be honest.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Andrew.
3: Yeah, cheers, guys. Always a pleasure. Oh.
0: Many thanks to the Summer winos for that.
1: Yes, and it's a very good book. Highly recommend it.
0: Well, I've been in the bath with it many times already, mm-hmm. which is a sign of quality. Yes. In fact, it's even encouraged me to start reading the last of the Summer Wine novel, *The Moonbather*. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right next up, uh, Warren taking a look at Kolchak, the Night Stalker.
4: There is a swinging singles cruise. I want to see this trip laid bare. You know why they call it in the game? But a bad man makes it a death cruise. There is a werewolf the moon. the moon is full and he's after Kolchak on The Night Stalker. Tonight's second feature on CBS Late Night.
5: In all civilizations and cultures around the planet hides an underbelly of darkness. That shrouds a more mysterious occurrences throughout our history. Stories of dark deeds and superstitious notions that have been passed down from the Generation to generation, often embellished with the odd theatrical flourish. Some of these stories have been grimmer than a Grimm's fairy tale, or they've just served to control an uneducated and fearful populace. Like a modern day conspiracy theory, these stories fire not only the fear of vulnerability, but at most stoke the dangerous of human instincts. Curiosity. curiosity. So, as a writer, you take this well weathered concept, you give it a new coat of paint and instead having a clean-cut hero type to fight the monsters, create a social mitford, a wrangling hack of a journalist who cares not for the ordinary, but the strange, the macabre, the plain odd, a man who is often financially broke. We presume he lives out of a suitcase in a two-bit apartment in the down-at-hill part of town. He lives on TV dinners and credit. A man who has no understanding of sartorial taste, Wearing the same clothes every day and insisting on wearing a raggedy old straw hat clearly seen better days. You equip him with a quick fire mouth and the inenviable skill of totally confusing people interlaced with the ability to surprise and irritate the hell out of people in authority. And so you've just created an ingenious character. The American writer Jeff Wright created such a character in the form of Carl Kolschak. But not so ace reporter who worked for any publication that would employ him. The character was almost an anti hero, bucking the trend of the all American clean cut guy who would fight the good fight whilst having the ladies swooning in his arms. You see, there was no way on earth Royce was going to pander to that expectation of his hero figure. Royce created Kolchak in the early 1970s and sold the idea of a TV movie to the American network ABC. Rice's original scripts were not accepted by the network, however, they did like the the idea and the premise behind it, and so it was passed to veteran science fiction writer Richard Matheson to rewrite. The reporter character originated in Rice's unpublished novels of Kolchak papers, and was set in Las Vegas. The newspaper reporter named Carl Kolchak tracks down a serial killer who preys on young women in the dark streets in a band of nocturnal analogies.
4: Myself, my name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bizarre,
0: the supernatural, the unexplainable.
4: You again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. (laughs) So-called super killer, wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. Well, I've been a reporter for twenty-two years. I've been a police officer for thirty. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is bishop. one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, not into his heart. Darren McGavin.
5: Rice stated he wanted to create a city full of fear and uncertainty, basing his mysterious psychopath on the behaviour of Jack the Ripper. However, the twist, as it turns out, is the attacker as a vampire, who raises from the dead to recharge his immortality batteries every few years. After the success of the TV movie, broadcast in 1972 under the title The Night Stalker, a sequel was commissioned in 1973 entitled The Night Strangler, and I think you get the general idea about what the storyline was. This time, however, it's set in the city of Seattle, as Kolshak has been unceremoniously thrown out of Las Vegas at the end of the last movie. Fueled by the success of two movies, Universal bought the rights and worked with ABC to look into producing a series. The ratings of the TV movies have been high, and the audience appreciation mirrored that as well. Initially, it was muted there was going to be two more TV movies, but Universal wanted a series. After all, there's more revenue in a series. Only two of the original cast were approached to return. Well-known actor Simon Oakland was Kolchak's heavily put-upon editor, who often suffers from high blood pressure and stomach problems, usually exacerbated by Kolchak's erratic behaviour. Darren McGavin was approached to reprise his role as Kolchak, but it took some time convincing him to return. And to be fair, I can understand Mr McGavin's concerns. He was known as a versatile actor and didn't want to be pigeon-told into what was regarded as a niche market. The idea of sci-fi fantasy horror series was not an original one had been done to death in such long-running series as Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. But after some persuasion, he agreed. The role would often define McGavin and would dog him throughout his, the rest of his acting career. Although he did appear in many other dramas, the Martian Chronicles, and The X-Files, playing a character who is described as the original of The X-Files department. Chris Carter, creator of The X-Files, cited the Night Stalker series as his springboard the idea of The X-Files after becoming hooked on the series in the 1970s, even to the point where he approached McGavin to reprise the role as Kolchak in The X-Files, and that would have been lovely to have seen. Or, Although McGavin declined the offer, he did appear in a very Kolchak-esque role. This, I think, was a great shame, as the world of Kolchak would have dovetailed beautifully into the world of the X-Files. Oh, well, never mind. The series went into production, 20 scripts were written, and much to Gav- McGavin's annoyance, they seemed to lurch from one monster story to another each week, one of the fears he had when he originally took on the role. Although this time his character had a full-time job with the Independent News Service and was based in Chicago, although it was shot in various locations in Los Angeles, interlaced, of course, with stock footage of Chicago. Two other new characters were penned who shared the office with Kolchak, the dependable and resourceful elderly Miss Emily and the pinstripe straight-backed by the book reporter Run Updike, a character who Kolchak would take great pleasure in mocking or baiting. In fact, as the remaining scripts came in, McGavin often had to rewrite them adding his own wit and byplay to his character no mean task as he was a series lead actor non-credited executive producer and now script editor alas this would all take its toll on McGavin and after 20 episodes he asked to be released from his contract because of his disillusionment in the project the series was broadcast on ABC between the tail end of 1974 into 75 but because of bad scheduling the series failed to make any audience rating to dent. And so a second series was totally ruled out. And so the network thought the series had been destined for the scrap heap, long to be forgotten. But it wasn't until the late 1970s when it was shown in the late-night slot, and it gave its somewhat of a cult status. The series ended up being sold internationally, as well as in the States. It wasn't until the early 1980s that Britain got to experience a culture effect. I have fond memories watching my portable black-and-white television on a late Friday night on BBC2. I love the adventures of this hack reporter, uncovering ancient myths, resurrected witches, evil spirits trying to dominate the world, mixed in with a healthy helping of werewolves, and weird creatures from the bowels of the earth guarding their nests. Guest stars were in abundance. Even Phil Silvers appears in one episode, and invariably comes to a grisly end. But the episode I'm going to look at is simply named Werewolf, and you can guess it does exactly as it says on the tin. And before I get on to the episode, I just want to highlight something. I've always loved these opening credits. they grab the audience before the story's even begun. they create a special menace of their own. Kolshak would wander into an empty office, whistling a happy tune, pour himself a cup of coffee, fruitlessly attempt to throw his hat on the hat peg, and sit down at his desk. The whistling stops as he places a sheet of blank paper into the typewriter and he bangs away on the keyboard. The theme music starts to build up in a sinister throng, and the audience sees Kolshak type the words and monster into his text. The sunlight disappears around the office and the darkness envelops it. The clock stops, a fan stops rotating. The theme music reaches a crescendo. Kolchak spots something from the corner of his eye. Crash zoom to Kolchak's fearful gaze. Like some gumshoe detective, Kolchak delivers an opening monologue at the beginning of the show into his portable tape recorder. This portion of the story often starts with his conclusions as if pre-preparing the audience for their faithful adventure. In this case, he sat with a giant liner in the background and explains about the fearful evils that exist in the world that transests the borders of any country. Quick bit of trivia, the liner in question is named the Hanover in the episode, and this is in fact the uh, former liner, the Queen Mary, which at this point, since 1968, had been tied up at Long Beach, Los Angeles, where it is being used as a floating hotel. There is extensive location work. In fact, the regular RNS office is the only sanding set in this. Everything in this episode is on location. with plenty of night film, and that gives it its edge. The reality of what's going on on the liner, you put a few flats together, it's not going to work. But if you can actually get on a boat, you're there. Well, the storyline says this is the last cruise of the Hanover before she is decommissioned. And that has been hired by a singles club for a four-day voyage. The stock footage used of the boat at sea, I should say vessel, not boat, or get a lot of bad press, was that of the French liner France which was still in service in 2006, whereupon she'd been scrapped. Anyway, it starts with the INS regulars celebrating the approaching Christmas holidays. Asian flu has decimated the staff, and so they are making the most of the festive period. Tony Vincenzo, Col Shack's editor, is packed and ready to leave for Los Angeles a Christmas cruise on the Hanover, where he's going to write a piece on the singles market. He's dressed as Santa and is uncomfortably in a good spirits. Something observed by Kolschak. Whilst carols are being sung in the office, the phone rings and Kolschak eavesdrops on a call from the New York office. This is nothing out of the ordinary, as Kolschak always likes to be one step ahead of what's going on, so he knows in which direction to run. We're informed that Vincenzo is required to stay in the office as the auditors are coming, which results in Kolschak going for an all-expenses cruise that Vincenzo was hoping to be on. So what kind of bang do we get for our buck here? Well, it's not the best, but if I was to give you the best, you'd have high expectations for the rest of the episodes. So I think it's only fair that I should show you a mediocre... OK, it's one of the worst episodes, I'll give you that. But it's actually good fun. Kolshak rocks up at the uh, Queen Mary, sorry, the Hanover, and makes his way to his cabin. see various youngsters running around, all enjoying themselves. And he goes into his cabin and meets his roommate. It's quite interesting because it doesn't exactly say which age group we're looking at here. So when I thought young singles, I thought young singles would be people in their early 20s. But it appears to be people in their mid 30s, into their early 40s. It's quite an interesting bunch of people. This particular chap is quite gregarious in nature, wearing his loud Hawaiian shirts. and he introduces Kolchak to his latest um, claim, shall we say, which turns out to be his ex-wife. He knows it's his ex-wife, it's just a complicated lifestyle they lead. Meanwhile, whilst that's all going on, a mysterious fedora-clad mystery man is being shown to his cabin. Now this, as you can imagine straight away, is the protagonist of the story. He's our werewolf incarnate, but he's as he's shown to his single he's a man in his what late 30s early 40s not the type of man who looks as though he would be coming on a singles cruise to look for love and this is where the hole in the plot is slightly for me if he's trying to keep a low profile why has he come on a cruise for four days with a load of young people on board and he's going to stick out like a sore thumb that's the one thing that um, just doesn't Sit well with me to be fair, but he quite obviously sticks out. He's not interested in spending any time with the youngsters. Anyway, as the story goes along, they all go to dinner and the moon rises. And as you can imagine, things get a little fraught in this man's cabin and um, he sort of changes. Now, this is made by Universal. I emphasize Universal because they brought us the classic horror films like Frankenstein. Dracula and the Wolfman. But this is nineteen seventies Universal Television, so it's going to be cheap, so don't expect the best effects. In fact, it looks like it's a bloke who's got a rug stuck on his face. However, he starts to run amok in the ship, throwing various members of crew downstairs and he breaks into the wheelhouse and slaughters the crew in there. And it's doesn't hold back in being violent, and quite frankly, if you're a member of staff on that ship, you will be getting in the lifeboat, and you'll be going, ta-da, I'm off. But no, um, the captain just breaks out the firearms, and they go shooting. Kolchak finds out what's going on, and sees bodies littered everywhere. He's told that there's been a fire hose breakage, and they've been hit by the hose, and they're slightly injured. And being the reporter of the year, sees things are slightly wrong. Anyway, so Kolchak is investigating more and gets slightly injured and gets knocked out whilst investigating a disturbance in the swimming pool. Or rather, the swimming pool is empty and it's very much an Art Deco swimming pool, which incidentally um, reopens this year uh, to the public. They've restored it. Anyway, uh, by the by. And he witnesses the werewolf, which is man, hairy hands, hairy face, going, Burr! It's not so much howling at the moon of more gargling with some um, Andrews' liver salts, but nevertheless he gets knocked out during the fracas and comes round in the infirmary where he's one side of a partition and he's listening to our protagonist. As this is now the morning, who is asking the medic for some hard drugs, basically to put him to sleep, so he sleeps all the way through the night and can't react to the moonlight. Like An injury on his arm that just will not heal. Presumably, this is where he got bit by nasty werewolf. His backstory is, he used to work for NATO, and he was in an outpost up in Alaska, when he and his three other workmates were attacked by something, and he was the only survivor, and he's gone missing. Well, as the story progresses, Kolchak makes the usual nuisance of himself, impersonates the captain's son, which really does irk the captain to the point that he threatens to clap him in irons. There is an underlying tension. It's the base under siege. It's see, there's no escape whatsoever. You could get in a lifeboat and you could row for shore, but it's going to be a long way. So you're stuck on this boat, and somewhere there's a killer on board. So it's traditional. There's no escape. The crew are basically being decimated, and a few of the guests have become injured, shall we say? But they're enjoying themselves. They're drunk half the time. They don't know what's going on. Except for the inquisitive Kolchak, who realizes that there's a werewolf on board, and he warns the captain, "This is a werewolf." And the captain, as you can imagine, doesn't believe him. This is a 20th century; werewolves are not real. Although he still can't explain why half of his staff have been. Yes, Kolchak thinks, "Well, the only thing I can destroy it with is silver." So he taps up the friendly steward, who can get him anything for a, a few dollars, who provides him with silver-plated knives and forks. No good whatsoever. So he's told the only silver on board the ship is on the captain's dress uniform. So Kolshak basically breaks into the captain's cabin and takes all his silver buttons off of his tunic and goes back to his cabin, melts them down and puts them into a shotgun cartridges. And that evening, on the last full moon, before it returns to port, he goes on the hunt for a werewolf. Now I'm not going to tell you what happens, but you can imagine what the ending's going to be. It's going to be Kolshak 1 werewolf nil but it's fun this is fun it's something that involves the audience it takes you with him because of the character that darren mcgavin portrays and the way he gives it life on the screen he's exuberant he's funny he doesn't like authority he basically is flawed he's an idiot he can't keep his mouth shut he rings up his boss and say, we got a werewolf on board. And can you imagine what his boss would say? If your boss said, you worked on a newspaper, yeah, I found a werewolf. Yeah, that's gonna go down like a case of cold sick because he's not covering the story that he sent. And this is a trait culture on a regular basis. However, there is drama, there's comic relief, and there is terror. And it's a lovely, lovely mixture it's Been put together and balanced very well. And of course, we have the cynical outro at the end of the story from Kolchak, as he rounds the story up lovely before returning to his taxi and making a quick exit to return to Chicago. Because at the end of the day, nobody's ever going to believe him. A good summary of this series is a mixture of The X-Files, Doctor Who, 70s style, and Scooby-Doo. And I mean that in actually quite a praiseworthy way. Um... Yeah, Scooby-Doo. As I say, I haven't picked the best of episodes, and I think if you give the best episode, then you have nothing to go and explore. i I've given you a little quick insight into the series. It's worth a look. It is available if you want to try before you buy. It is available YouTube, but I, the price of the box set is, is under £15, and it's worth it for 20 episodes of fun. Don't expect high-value production costs. It's the 1970s. But the acting is fun. A lot of fun. And it's something you could sit back and just watch and delve into. Give it a go. Tell us what you think. That's Kolshak.
4: The shipping line would only admit to having had a psychotic stowaway on board. The killer had fallen overboard after being cornered by ship's officers, so they said. All traces of Bernard Steiglitz vanished. His baggage was gone. His name could not be found in any passenger manifest. NATO officials claimed no such man had ever existed in their organization, and any attempt to publish a werewolf story about such a man would be met with the heaviest legal artillery. Vincenzo, always gun-shy, conveyed that message to me in no uncertain terms. So, here the story sits. For good, I guess. No one but you and I know the real truth. The real story.
0: Thank you very much Warren for that yes Warren's on the point of almost launching his own podcast yes. I understand but yes. more details of that to come soon I believe mm-hmm. but now here's Paul and Nick looking at shoestring
6: the archives people it's me paul the shy Yeti, paul chandler and i've got nick goodman here how are you doing nick hello <laughs> i'm good
4: <laughs> yeah, good good i'm good i've got gs um i've just defied a, a headache oh. which
6: um, i'm pleased with yeah, well um <laughs> yeah. this time uh, we're going to talk about a show that has been visited before by martin uh, on the show but uh, we wanted to kind of um give our own sort of little thoughts uh we're talking about shoestring which ran from 1979 to 1980 for two seasons and 21 episodes where do you want to start shall we shall we explain to the listeners who may not know uh what it's about um it's yes
4: i mean uh, if i remember uh, uh, because I, I say correct me of anything that I'm wrong because you've seen it a lot more recently than I have uh it's about a former computer programmer who's had a nervous breakdown and he becomes uh, a private eye he takes cases uh on his radio show uh it was oh who created I, I can't remember whether it was Robert Banks Stewart that created it
6: yeah uh, he, Robert Banks he Stewart had a, and Richard Harris
4: Yes, not not to be confused with the no. <laughs> that's Richard Harris, the British writer, not not Richard Harris, the Irish actor. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, Rob Banks, Stewart of course, fa- famous for his Doctor Who work and Avengers and Callan, and very prolific sixties, seventies, eighties TV writer. Um, a very good, solid idea, I think. And uh, Trevor Eve was the lead, Eddie Shoestring, um, and. I, I as a, a completely trivial thing uh my mum was had a huge crush on him <laughs> and uh so i mean we watched shoestring from beginning to end we you know we did all all two seasons and he uh, he he yes he i bought my mum a huge poster of him and uh my i think there was a time when my dad tried to grow a moustache to look like him (laughs) um yeah the shoestring was a was a hit in our household i haven't actually it's one of the few series that i i kind of rated that i haven't actually got around to buying yet um but it's yeah i mean it's it's nice because it was a bit of a change from the sweet it wasn't sweeney but had a kind of a a toughness about it but it wasn't about it wasn't car chases and things like that it was sort of more personal uh cases and a lot more personal into people's lives and very as far as i'm very intelligently done uh entertaining and uh, and i think it ran it ran for the two seasons as you say but i think the reason it closed was um, they uh, and Trevor Eve didn't want to do any more. so right?
6: says that he kind of wanted to do more theatre work, and one of the interesting things is that the theme tune, which is quite memorable, uh, is done by <laughs> George
4: Fenton. And <laughs> then <laughs> 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 it goes into a saxy,
6: doesn't it? Was done, it was done by George Fenton, and he, and he, he also did the theme from the show Berserak, Yes. Uh, it's interesting to think, um, particularly as... as obviously, I, I, I like Shoestring, but I've got more of a connection with Bergerac, and it's, uh, it's sort of weird to think that had Trevor E. wanted to keep going, then maybe Bergerac would never have come about. But
4: uh. Almost certainly. I, mean, I have, to, have to say, you're d- absolutely right on that, because um, I... Remember Bergerac following uh, it's that start in '81 as yeah. a it was so obvious because it was it was the same team production team, same um slot the uh, Sunday evenings, and uh, it was so obvious that it was a replacement for Shoestring. That you know, you, you, even at the age of what 12 13 I was at the time, it, uh, I you know, I could see that Bergerac was a natural sort of successor to to it i personally i all i know i you know i've i've watched several bergeracs with you and i remember a lot when when it was on but i for me i always felt she, I, I i was a little bit more for shoestring um but then that was i suppose i i
6: I don't know. Maybe. maybe, maybe well, we I'm... used to go to the Channel Islands as well, so yeah, that gave me an extra connection. But uh, yes. there's actually a much smaller sort of team of regular cast. There's yeah, you've got Eddie, uh, you've got um, Michael Medwin playing Don Satchley, who's the yes. owner of Radio
4: West. That's right.
6: Yes, um, I remember him. Yeah. And um, I I I I read on on Wikipedia that. Um, uh, once the series finished, um, Bristol's got, Well, I don't think we actually said that it's set in Bristol. Um, and one of the episodes I'm going to talk about is, is, very, is very near one of the major um, landmarks. But uh, apparently, when the show finished, Bristol's first independent radio station was started under the name of Radio West. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> a year after it finished. Um, a, a word uh,
4: f- uh, about the, the, the third. I think it's. A, I think there was only about three regulars that the uh, the lovely Liz Crowther daughter of um, Leslie, Crowther, Leslie Crowther was yeah. the, uh, the secretary in it she, she was lovely
6: yeah um, um, I, I didn't realise that she I, I was doing some research about her because I recognised her she's in um, a sort of a 1987 episode of Bird Rack which is one of my favourites um, so they obviously sort of kept in, in contact with the with the team, or the team would sort. Of, yeah, Berger, it's more than coincidence that she was in was in Berger, I yeah. Thought, but
4: uh, jobs for the girls in yeah. this case. I, I think also uh, going back to Trevor Eve, I, I have a feeling that as well as wanting to do theatre, I, I I think there was he wasn't too happy about the direction it was going, or. I I mm. I could be wrong about that. But you could also tell Chris Boucher was involved, uh, because I think he was script editor, wasn't he, as Chris Boucher? Uh, Who, I know he I know he was he did Bergerac. Yes, he
6: did. Yes, yeah.
4: I think he might have been shoestring as well, I'm fairly certain he was. And there's um, Eddie Shoestring goes into a toy shop and I think it's pretty well the last episode uh, where this, the, it's, there's a storyline about 40 toys and, and uh, the sort of health and safety and uh, he goes into one sh- uh, shore and, and asks for a toy and uh, the guy there says oh yeah we've got, we got Blake 7, Doctor Who and I thought yeah <laughs> that's Chris Boucher getting a fl- plug in for Blake 7
6: <laughs> um, there's one other uh person who's listed as a, a main character a, a character called erica um who is shoestrings landlady um oh, right. she's a she's it. a barrister um she sometimes provides legal advice for the cases inves- the cases yeah. he's investigating and there's also yeah. a sort of hint of romance but um yeah there's only there are a few people sometimes the djs who appear in the station um recur but most of these extra sporting cast are only in three or four episodes although there's one called pete who's a sound engineer who's in eight episodes but uh,
4: I, the uh, other thing that was interesting about the two the two characters the eddie shoestring and jim bergerac is you can see there were there, there was interest in kind of uh, characters that are pulled back from the edge yeah. because um I believe, it, and I think I've read this rather than actually remember it on the show, that Bergerac is a recovering alcoholic.
6: That's right, yes.
4: um, So you've got an interesting kind of backstory for both, because you've got one who's had a nervous breakdown, and the other's... So they're, they're coming to it a little damaged, and I, I think that's an interesting starting point for any character.
6: Yeah, and with, with Bergerac it's sometimes returned to where... Um, people who want to discredit him know that's his weakness, and then yeah. spike his drink. Or, or um, um, the, the, the episode that I rewatched of, Shoes, of Shoestring today um, does hark back to his uh, his, his computer past. Um, yeah, but uh, um, some of the first episodes, I think Martin talked about Private Ear, which was the first episode, which was directed right, by, yeah. that was directed by Dougie Canfield. Oh. Um, so a good start. And I
4: think that I think the- that was deliberate, I think, because I think they... Uh, uh, Robert Banks Stewart, of course, knew him from the, his, his Doctor Who days, and yeah. possibly even before, and wanted to get somebody really strong for, uh, directing the first episode. Was, I was very pleased with... with, with um,
6: Public Yeah, um, that's the one with William Russell in, I think. Yes. Yeah.
4: And you can hear Video Kill the Radio Star in, uh-huh. in one scene. I, I That's something I remember from it. Definitely. I
6: think that's one of the problems they had when they were releasing it, was getting the clearance for the amount of music that was used in it, but yeah. um, for, for ages, the first season was available, and then um, it took a while for it both, uh, both seasons to be uh, re- released. Um, but uh, Yeah, and so you've got episodes written by Robert Banks-Stewart, Bob Baker... uh, Ah,
4: well, Bristol, you see, it would have been right up his territory,
6: because he he was a Bristol-based... Terence Feely, now I feel he has Avengers connections... um, He
4: does, Avengers, uh, Callan, he he was very experienced, um, you know, and... um, uh, I think UFO as well. Mm. Uh, I, he was v- very, very much the man of the, the moment.
6: Uh, I should tell you some of the other names of the writers in case I don't recognize them, but you do Dave Humphreys, uh, Peter don't. Miller, Peter King, John Krug.
4: Oh, John Cruise, Return of the Saint.
6: Yes, it says,
4: and, yes. And some of the... Yes, he's, he's, he's... I don't recognise the other guys.
6: Michael uh, Armstrong, Jim Hawkins, uh, Philip Martin, I presume that's Philip Martin Philip, who wrote oh, uh, Vengeance uh, um, on Varus.
4: Yeah. Almost certainly,
6: yeah. Um, and um, Dougie Canfield directs a second episode in the season as well. Uh-huh. Um, I don't recognise many of the directors... Certainly um, not as far as sort of being uh, a lot. A lot of Bergerac has Doctor Who connections, and uh, so, so does Shuttering um, to a certain extent, but yeah. maybe not maybe not as much. But I do simply
4: from Pyroplanets planets in, in one as a, as a nasty.
6: And um, 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 Toya is in the one oh that I, Philip Martin wrote, and Chris Biggins um, Oh Yeah, uh,
4: yeah. Toya and Chris Biggins play Arch Enemies. Uh, oh. I, I, no, yeah, I, remember, I remember that one very well.
6: Yeah. Um, now, uh, in, in the second season, haha there's a... Uh, there's, that's interesting. I didn't even know about this. Uh, in the second season, there were two episodes written by somebody called William Hood. Now, William Hood is a pseudonym for Robert Holmes. Um, oh. and I don't think I knew that he'd written for uh, shoestring. I, um, I wonder. I I think because
4: I, I've got his book. I, I well, is is the his biography. I think I had I I because the, with the Chris Boucher connection, I know he did some Bergeracs, and yes. I I I thought he wrote for shoestring. I wonder why. He must have been under contract somewhere else. Cause I wonder why he was under a pseudonym because yeah. he certainly wasn't with Bergerac.
6: Yeah, um, and. Um, robert Banks stewart writes two episodes of the second season but whereas in the first season he had his name on the screen uh, apparently he had the uh, pseudonym of robert bennett in the second season and um uh, and, and although, although one of those two was written by paula milne and robert Banks stewart but still as robert uh. bennett Paula Um, Mill who
4: they later when she wrote Attack of the Cybermen uh, everybody thought she was uh, a pseudonym maybe she is a pseudonym I don't know but uh, that was you know they said uh, as uh, the cyber leader um, uh, David Banks said uh, well that was Eric in a good wig (laughs)
6: Um, but um, yeah Chris Boucher as you say he writes the last episode um, of season two Uh, the last episode of all that would yeah. that, I bet
4: that's the toy shop one hence yeah. the, uh, the, the, the that was a good one actually it was a good mm. one to go out on it. Um, but uh, I actually like the idea of uh, there only been two seasons I like, I like shows that go out on, on top
6: yeah.
4: um, i uh, but there you cool.
6: Doug, go Dougie Canfield directed a, a second uh, well a third episode sorry in the second season yeah um, uh, yeah but the the one I wanted to mention that I've watched uh, this very day is the first episode of se- of season two. It's called Room with a View. Um, now, the, the synopsis is... Retired music hall singer Letty Ross witnesses a murder in an empty house opposite her flat, but when the police and her daughter are dismissive, she calls in Eddie. Um, and and I, enjoy- I enjoyed this one. I mean, I watched it totally randomly because I don't think I'd seen it before but uh, I, I enjoyed it partly because you've got a sort of he, uh, uh, eddie and um letty uh, team up one uh, well, plus so you've got the old the old lady investi- helping to investigate uh, always appeals to me. Well,
4: i i i always yes i mean you and old ladies are <laughs> uh, uh, like Laura and hardy you know you, 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 they, they are your calling card <laughs> Uh, you, you, you know if there's an elderly aunt in something it's written by Paul <laughs> I, <laughs> yes. I literally book. everything
6: that ever has involved aunts yeah, involving, involving
4: little old ladies
6: uh, yes. absolutely yeah. so, I, uh, well that's because rips his face off, I am a little old lady you are a little old lady I have been for yes. the last 40 years But um, uh-huh. it, it's an interesting one because I, I, I found it interesting because the lady who plays this uh, Letty Ross she's an actress called uh, Mad- adeline thomas and um i always found it find it interesting when you you realize you're watching somebody who was born like well she was born in 1890 so she's literally a victorian that on the is, screen yeah. and
4: uh well it's it's like watching one of my gra- all my grandparents were victorians they were all born in 18 something or other and uh i i would you know it's i, I having done a lot of that sort of risk family research at the moment it's it's fascinating isn't it i mean you know it it it, it
6: is endlessly fascinating also when you look on her imdb page um she died when she was 99 in 1989 and uh she apparently was three days away from her 100th birthday but um, oh bless her but that means that when she was acting in shoestrings she was pushing 90 uh you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't have thought she was um but uh, she she was also in things like um Shelley and um angels and uh beasts she was bertha lumley in oh, coronation beast. street uh but she was in the dick emery show crown court one of that's one of treby favorite shows um she was in The Frighteners, which is a, a compilation series that I, I've got recently. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's in loads of things, but she's actually looks like she's one of those people who probably when she was younger, she was in sort of like movie she was in the grove family in in 1955 oh, yes. um but uh that was one of the the very first soaps yeah but you, you see her as the an old lady character but she was in how green was my valley in 1960 and uh uh itv television playhouses and
4: oh, i love it when they get old really old um you know ones in in it's yeah.
6: great but um one of the funny—I mean, I was talking about a landmark in this episode. Clifton Suspension Bridge plays a, a part because there's a bit of a fight on the hills around that. I don't think that's an area of Bristol I've ever really no. been to because I guess you probably need to to have a car to go out that way. Maybe.
4: My then, as you know, I, 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 in the early '90s, I was courting in Bristol, and all these series in Bristol that you know, I, I suddenly came into sharp focus because uh, I, w- I was spending sort of there twice twice weekly. And uh, she showed me a, 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 some missing lights in the Clifton Suspension Bridge, and she said apparently her dad accidentally drove straight into those and knocked them out. Uh, I thought to myself, I would be absolutely um, wetting myself because um, you know I'd, uh, heights and things like. I'm not too good with heights, and uh, you know,
6: it looks like yeah, it looks like it would have been a good. Um... Southern Park location, yeah. But, because uh, you did,
4: you did early Southern uh,
6: Park in uh, in, in um, the yeah. But um, oh, there's a, there's another face I recognise. Um, Oscar James oh, plays yes. uh, sort
4: of uh, the Richard one of the original uh, East Yes,
6: yeah. Al- although it looks like uh, he's had quite a, a busy career going right back to he the has 60s, uh, with all sorts of. Um, characters. The, the 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 thing that was the 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 cameo that was the most surprising, considering um, what big what a big part he's played in some Doctor Who stories, was that uh, Christopher Benjamin appears, yes. uh, but literally in a two or three minute scene. Um, where a shoestring has to go onto a rooftop and talk to somebody, get some advice, and this guy, well played by Christopher ben- Benjamin, is just um, happily working up on this really high high level, and shoestring's petrified. Oh. And, um, you can see that's filmed near uh, Clifton Suspension Bridge as well. But...
4: Again, you've got. Not, I, I really like the idea of uh, a vulnerable. Hero, mm. someone who, who isn't brave with heights and things like you know. I, I think that what make, really makes things like that for me, uh, and what makes the series real.
6: But I was surprised that Christopher Benjamin was there just for that scene. That's literally the only scene he was. He well, was yeah, in,
4: you but, expect uh... to get more more for your money with Chris Benjamin, don't you? Right? <laughs> yeah,
6: yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting sort of episode. Uh, nice uh, episode to start the 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 second season on um kept me sort of uh, you know because you weren't sure who was the who was the person behind the murder um and also the retired musical singer um that she lives in a flat owned by her children who quite clearly i would rather she um who, you know, who had died Was or in a home bedding, or whatever, yeah. so that they could sell the place. So that makes you sort of, and uh, I think that that uh, um, makes uh, Eddie Insulate more put you on, yeah, yeah. and makes Eddie more protective as well. I'm wanting to, um, but, yeah, but uh, yeah. I need to get watching more of these. Uh,
4: Episodes. They are good, I, 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 here's me saying that when I haven't actually even got it on DVD, but uh, I, I, it's a quality series, I
6: remember that much. But uh, anyway, well, um, I think that's um, all I want to, to say about Shoestring uh, this time, but I uh, thought it would be just nice to dip into um, another episode that we ha- we haven't uh, talked about, and who knows, maybe it'll become a, a series that different members of the uh, the archives team dip into and, and review their own um, episodes or uh, <laughs> give their two on shoestring Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway well thanks Nick and thanks to Steve Pleasure. and uh, I'll <laughs> hand you back to Andrew and Lisa, <laughs> bye bye for now bye
0: Thank you Paul and thank you Nick. Yes. Well, only one more article to go. Yes. So, we'll round this issue off with you and me looking at... Dial
4: 9, 9, 9. When in London that's what you do to call the police. I know. I'm a policeman from Canada attached to Scotland Yard. My name's Mike McGuire.
1: Good afternoon Lisa. Good afternoon Andrew.
0: Dial 999.
1: Yes I'll dial 999.
0: Nine. Nine. I've fallen asleep by then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this is almost
0: like a sequel to our David Nixon article in that it you is. discovered Dial 999 Yeah. Uh, through your ABC discs. Yes. Haven't you? Yes. So we've got Four episodes?
1: Four episodes. Though it, was, it wasn't known to other people. It's just not something I've ever come across before. Right. So.
0: And it's a series from the late 50s yes. starring Robert Beatty. Yes. And the episode we're going to look at is mm-hmm. uh, is one starring William Hartnell, mm-hmm. Bill Fraser yes. and uh, a bit of Patrick Troughton. A bit
1: of Patrick Trouton.
0: Not yes. starring a bit of Patrick Troughton. No. It's all he, of Patrick le- Troughton. He doesn't just like put his leg in or something it's like just, that. It's, he's
1: not in it for very long and he, he's not even on the cast He doesn't have a
0: huge part. No. Right. Um, But (laughs) it's a series that is very difficult to find any information about. Yes. There's nothing on Wikipedia about it. No. Uh, IMDB does have it listed, but even Mm -hmm. the transmission dates are vague in some cases. Mm -hmm. And even more so in the episode we're going to look at. Yes. Because the episode comes in a nice little box. Obviously. Mm -hmm. And... If you look on the back of the yeah. box, it says Dial 0999 50,000 hands 7th of December 1963. Yes. Uh, we, uh, but that's when Doctor Who was like running.
1: Yes, Doctor Who had been on for a few for weeks, about 3 weeks. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you look inside, it says the 23rd of November, mm-hmm. that's suspicious. Yes. 1958.
3: Yes.
0: But if you look on imdb yeah it just says episode transmitted 1959 no with, i mean yes. W- yes with no date at all no so this is this is good isn't it yes. <laughs> yeah. so i'll read you the blurb. Uh-huh. it says a factory safe is robbed and one of the criminals accidentally shot maguire takes unusual steps to run the crooks to earth
1: I will out he's shot by himself.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, no. Written by Ian Greaves, directed by Terence Fisher. Yes. So Robert Beatty is Detective Inspector Mike Maguire. Yes,
1: he's a Canadian policeman.
0: He's a mounted policeman. No, he's not a
1: mounted policeman. He's a Canadian policeman. <laughs> not all Canadian policemen are mounted, I don't think. <laughs> and it he's... depends how
0: lucky they are.
1: <laughs> he's on attachment to Scotland Yard yeah. to learn how... English policemen do their jobs.
0: Yeah. Although, by this point, he's county constabulary. He's been, like, shifted off.
1: Basically, I think they ran out of ideas for London. And London-based And they stories. were like, oh, what do we do? Let's send him off to Hertfordshire.
0: Hertfordshire, where, where hurricanes hardly ever happen, apparently.
1: Okay, so, yeah.
0: But I've written some notes. We'll I'm go cool. through the notes. Then we'll talk about uh, down 999 999- no, how many nines? <laughs> Lots of nine. generally. <laughs> yes. I have to ask: Did you ever dial nine 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 in real life? I not on
1: not intentionally. You know, I think my yeah. phone once dialed nine because the problem with smartphones is if you've got it in your bag or yeah. your pocket and it's unlocked, mm. you can accidentally dial people. And I think it did once dial 999, and I think I cut it off and wasn't brave enough to tell them or I dialed it by accident. They say if you do it, you're supposed to say to them, I'm really sorry, I've dialed you by accident. Yeah. I
0: mean, it's a late 50s series, and yeah. the 999 number wasn't available until 1937. Yes. Uh, And only in London. It's only later it became available in in other cities and later the whole of the UK.
1: So presumably before that, if you had an emergency, you just had to go and find a policeman. Yeah. Or a police box, maybe. I suppose so. And Uh, the policeman would blow his whistle.
0: But we've had some discussion about why is it 999, not 111? Because that would be quicker. Yeah. Because, you know, we laugh at the title sequence taking, like, yeah. ages to actually do it.
1: Well, it does take ages. You, mm. he, It's like you don't nine 999. You don't do, do it with, like, big gaps in between.
0: <laughs> but it's the dial going around. Yeah. But if it was 111, apparently, um, like, overhead cables, mm. if they sort of knocked together or something like that or or got stray signals on them you might get a blip on the line which might give you a one 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 so Mm -hmm. they might get like weird calls silent calls calls from like birds or leaves or something (laughs) like that and it was in the days of push button telephones a a button a A. yeah button a and button Button B. b yeah and to dial the operator you could dial zero yeah so you could you could fudge it the equipment so that you could make nine a free number as well as zero because it was just next next to it it, so the idea was like you could find it in the dark by putting your middle finger in the Mm -hmm. zero because there's a little stop there and then you put your index finger next to it and that's the nine because what was it you said um who was it their kids were amazed at rotary phones
1: when we were at the museum of london and they had um dial phones rotary phones Mm there and my my godson and his younger brother were amazed that you had to go to all the effort of turning the dial all the way around yeah because they'd only ever seen a push-button phone
0: okay they spent ages playing with it yes okay yeah uh but yeah so it's late late 50s the music mm-hmm. is is a harmonica basically yes is it tommy riley yes whoever tommy riley like
1: is. presumably somebody knows of him, but. yeah.
0: But we open with uh, Bill Fraser lurking yes. in a hat
1: outside a gate.
0: He's not lurking in a hat. No, he's wearing <laughs> a hat. He's wearing a hat. Yeah. Yes. It'd be a big hat for yeah. him. And there's a gunshot.
1: There is a gunshot. Gunshots. Yeah.
0: And uh we cut to inside, and mm-hmm. there's there's a sort of is he a sort of watchman? Yes. Who, who sort of spark out? Yeah. And somehow Hartnell's managed to not shoot the bloke, but himself.
1: Yeah, I think there was a tussle for the gun. A and, tussle. Yes. I'm trying to
0: imagine Hartnell and that bloke having a tussle. Yes. And it's, yeah, he's clearly the most incompetent burglar in the world, as he shot himself.
1: It's, it's very odd to, to see. I mean, because obviously William Hartnell, before he does Doctor Who, mm. is known for playing yeah. um, Sergeant Majors and and hard men and, and criminals. Yeah. I've never seen him in that kind of part. So it's really odd to see him playing this kind of part, and I mean at the point at this point he's only fifty years old. Yeah, he but looks, he looks old, older.
0: Yeah. Oddly, I've just sort of noticed that Hartnell's in the very first episode, oh, okay. "The Killing Job," mm-hmm. um, written by Ted Willis, no okay, less, gosh. and directed by Alvin Rakoff or Rakoff, wherever you say it. Mm-hmm. So the thing about Hartnell being. I'm uh, happy that Robert Beatty was in the Tenth Planet. Mm. I thought it was just this episode, yeah, but clearly but... they go back even further. Even further, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's mm. that's rather nice. Um, but yeah, so Hartnell shot himself, and he can't walk.
1: Mm.
0: And I'd like to think we can't go back on the train like we were going to. Yeah, or something.
1: go back on the train. Yeah, it's, well, that's just.
0: Yeah, that's weird. That's like a slow getaway. Just, well, there's a lot of slow getaways in this. So, Bill Fraser dials 999. He does. The first time it happens in the episode. And
1: calls an ambulance. And calls for
0: an ambulance. They're at United Plastics, mm. which just made me think of Autons. Yes. I'm desperately trying to get Doctor Who links. So. <laughs> um, and, then, and an old ambulance turns up, ringing its well, bell. Well,
1: it's not an old ambulance. It's probably a contemporary ambulance. Yeah.
0: Two ambulance men turn up. Bill Fraser helps to get Hartnell out into the ambulance, yeah. whilst the other bloke stays behind with the night watchman. You mm. said the the bloke was covered in chalk or something.
1: Yeah, because um, obviously at this point they're ambulance men, they're not paramedics. Mm. And so well, they're not really, they can do a little bit of first aid. Yeah. But anything above that, they're sort of the equivalent of Godfrey in a way, because he's got, if you notice, <laughs> he's got a first aid box. And some
0: ointment for wasp stings.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, but I don't know, one, one of them's lent some... against something, and there's like a white substance. Perhaps they're on, they were on a
0: smoke break, and they were leaning against a wall or something, you know, <laughs> whistling. Um, so Hartnell's in the ambulance there yes. and the other ambulance man goes back inside to help yes. his mate leaving bill fraser alone which is always a bad idea yes so bill fraser gets in the ambulance which is from hertfordshire because it says on the side and uh, and drives it away uh, and i put medium speed getaway it's,
1: it's the noisiest ambulance ever as well yeah You know, it's got the engine's really loud.
0: Does it need a service?
1: Uh, Well, I think it's just general for cars. Then you forget how loud cars used to be. So
0: the ambulance men now dial nine 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 and ask for
1: the police. Police.
0: Maguire gives some blurb about after six months of duty. Yeah, he's been carted off.
1: They've sent him away. Yeah, he's too annoying.
0: So Robert Beatty turns up and talks to the. The Watchman, who mm-hmm. describes Hartner as the little one, the little one, yes, yeah, which is yes. amusing considering yeah. Trouton's a long later, yeah. and apparently there was nine thousand pounds in the safe.
1: Goodness me, I, why is it called Fifty Thousand Hands then? I don't get that
0: because t- later on it's oh, twenty-five thousand people, people, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they've got yeah, two I get hands that now. each. Sorry, although Did they, it? well, I'll, I'll discuss that when we get to it. Okay. Um... It's got to be at least one armed, one one armed person (laughs) in the town, hasn't it? Probably. Um, So yeah, the and he asked for a description, and I was of the two people, and I just wish he'd said, "Well, one of them looks like Bill Fraser, and the other's the dead spit for William Hartnell." But hey, (laughs) because that's the thing in these universes—no, these people, these people never exist, do they? So Bill Fraser drives the ambulance off into a field.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, into a road.
0: Well, well, yeah.
1: A, a track.
0: Yeah, and then yeah. into a field, in, into some bushes, basically. Well, no,
1: no it's, just, it's still on the road.
0: Yeah. All right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Hartnell says, "Get a donk, a- get a donkey, get a donkey." <laughs> He's going to make an escape. <laughs> now, get a doctor. Now, the reason I said that because I'd then written LNK 102, so I read that as donkey. <laughs> LNK 102 is the name, is the number of the ambulance.
1: That would be a really slow get away yeah. a donkey, wouldn't it?
0: So he puts Hartnell under a blanket and sticks him in a bush, basically. Yeah, he he him.
1: Yeah. I'm going to get my car. Yeah.
0: Off to get his car. Scotland Yard don't have the prints on record because they found some prints on the scene. Yes, they found some
1: prints on um, on the desk and safe and stuff. But Mm. a
0: random RAC man has seen the ambulance. Yes,
1: and there's a great bit with the RAC man later, isn't there? Yeah, Yeah. we'll
0: we'll, we'll say we'll say that. So, so Troughton's sort of lurking about, isn't he's, he? He's asleep
1: in the field. Yeah, he, yeah.
0: Because
1: yeah. he's a gentleman of the road. What do you think of his
0: costume? It's a remarkably ragged, isn't it? It's very
1: ragged. Yeah. yeah.
0: So he, he's just sort of watching, isn't he? Yeah. He, lurking. Uh, Bill Fraser returns in his car mm-hmm. and then picks up Hartnell. TXU142 is his car. Yes. So yeah, I've got, I've got all these written down. The police car mm-hmm. is MXC334 so there you go and yeah they, they sort of talk to the RAC man yes who sort of gesticulates he salutes to, yeah
1: because didn't they used to salute yeah they had to
0: yeah yeah
1: because yeah. 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 there there used to be a television programme called the last salute about the RAC and the AI and the sort of rivalries
0: yeah uh, Trenton's talking to himself isn't yeah. he Saying uh, he's going to sleep in style tonight. Yeah, because
1: he's going to steal some blankets and a pillow. Yeah.
0: And then he gets in the ambulance because yeah. he, he hears them coming, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And he 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 he, do, he does things like I didn't mean no harm, Governor. Yeah. He does. He sort of rough,
1: yeah.
0: rough. What me, Governor?
1: He? Yeah. I wasn't going to steal nothing.
0: He tells them about Hartnell, mm-hmm. but you don't know when it happened because he don't have a watch. No. <laughs> so meanwhile, um, Bill Fraser's gone home to his wife yes. it's a very nice house isn't yeah, it's it it's quite
1: yeah. a nice house well obviously crime play, plays
0: crime plays yeah mm. um, Hartnell's been shoved in the garage in the garage
1: he? on like a table of some kind like a trestle table or yeah, not... a wallpapering table <laughs> or something
0: <laughs> they're going to do the like the wallpaper routine in a minute <laughs> like Bruce Forsyth um, yeah so Hartnell's, Hartnell's sort of reclining isn't he mm. he's got quite quite an easy part really Hartnell yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he, he just he gets just, to lie down a like lot that,
1: lie down, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So Bill Fraser um, goes off again, doesn't he? Yes, he gets it for the pain. He's in
1: agony.
0: Yeah. And they throw a cordon around the area. Yes. And they've got some maps.
1: Around Letchworth. Uh,
0: with with little flags, yes. doesn't they? So, yeah, we go off to the hospital... And uh, Bill Fraser's breaking glass, isn't he? he? Is. Getting the drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's a dispensary, isn't dispensary, it? Dispensary, yeah. Which yeah. seems to have a load of enormous test tubes in it for some reason. I don't know why. To make it look science-y, I Probably, suppose. Yeah. So a nurse comes in, mm-hmm. and I put she is nobbled by Bill Fraser. Yes. But it turns out she's rather more than nobbled, yes. isn't she? Yes, um, he, he, he kills her. Somehow he managed to strangle her.
1: Yeah, well, because it's shot... You can see his back, and he's... So you can't see her. All you see yeah. is her arm. Yeah. So, and he has got oh, his hands around her neck. Yeah. So I guess he does strangle yeah. But you don't see it.
0: So Bill Fraser goes off through the door, like yes. like you do. <laughs> so, yeah. And there's some jaunty harmonica music. Yeah,
1: it's very jaunty music because he just killed somebody.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, well, I suppose that's the advert break, is it? Probably, yeah. Yeah. And I said to you, rewind it when we come back in because the police <laughs> car zooms off. Yeah. Uh, but outside what I presume is meant to be the police station, yes. there's there's a sign up, isn't there? Yes. There's a notice board. And mm-hmm. there's, there's a picture of a policeman saying, there's no better job.
1: Yes, and he, he appears to be holding up what I assume is a warrant card, Yeah, but you can't read it because it's too blurry.
0: <laughs> and I thought this is real sort of peak sort of Dixoner dot green period, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. yeah. They're sort of advertising the police, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it turns out there's a, there's been a murder at the hospital. Mm-hmm. A, a nurse was strangulated. Back at P- Bill Fraser's house, um, he gives Hart another jab, mm, doesn't he? Does. Because uh, apparently he was a medical orderly grade one. That was lucky.
1: Yeah.
0: I just imagine him like making a real sort of, um, sort of fist up of
1: yeah hash of it.
0: Is that a phrase? A fist up? I don't know. Uh, yeah.
1: I'm not sure that's Yeah. <laughs>
0: So the matron mm-hmm. says uh, a hypodermic anamorphia is missing. Mm-hmm. So could it be a drug addict? Mm-hmm. Or could it just be somebody in pain? But there are some prints on the cabinet, aren't there?
1: No, on the door. All on, right, the door, on, the door on the door handle. And technically on the phone. Because yeah. cause the nurse picks the phone up and he... Replaces the handset.
0: I like Bill Fraser's rather morbid thing that um, there's plenty of room in the garden to put Hartnell if they <laughs> need to. If he dies, yeah. yeah. The prints they get at the hospital yes. are different to the prints that they found on site. At the factory, at the factory.
1: and in the ambulance. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there was this thing about one, one of them keeps his hands in his pockets all the time, yes. which... Mm is isn't actually true. He or just, wears gloves. Or just wears gloves. Yeah. There is there is that. Yeah. I just like the idea of being a robber with your hands in your pockets all the time. Yeah. You know, where do you want to put me the money? And you just nod in where to put it. <laughs> so it'll take a Houdini to wriggle out of their cordon, apparently. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about that. Yes, Robert Beatty says... Why don't they fingerprint the entire town? Twenty-five thousand people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as you said, yes. hence the name. 5, 000, fi- fifty thousand hands. hands. Yeah. But it's really got to be something like twenty-four thousand nine hundred and seventy-three or something. Yeah, there's going to be a few people that don't have
1: both hands. Both hands. Yeah.
0: Because yeah. yeah, the average number of hands a person's got is it across the world is less than two. Yes. Yeah. So if you if you've if you've got two hands you're actually mm. not average if okay. you think about it okay. mathematically right. yeah uh they they can't force them to do it it would be mm. an unusual step and then cut to a load of people in queues yes I don't know whether they're just like random bits of queuing that they yeah. filmed or what
1: well there's one bit where it definitely looks like they've filmed it specifically yeah but yeah the whole queuing bit because there's quite a lot of people and I can't imagine you get that many people together just for that shot but maybe they did
0: Mm, i don't Mm. know but yeah suddenly they've got an awful lot of extras haven't they just Mm. for a couple of shots uh but the chief constable um pleas for cooperation doesn't he Mm -hmm. and the police will call on houses to do it if you can't come in
1: yes so anybody that doesn't go to one of the centers Mm. gets a call from a policeman
0: yeah and i said what is the time scale of all this
1: yeah it's not clear is it because it it seems to be organized
0: extremely quickly well
1: obviously they were more efficient in the 50s yeah. uh,
0: but a policeman comes to Bill Fraser's house mm-hmm. and he realises he had one glove off to open the cabinet yeah um, and so, he's touched the door and he's touched things so he, he, they've got his prints yeah. um, but there's still a way out so they're, now they're mopping up the invalides and malingerers <laughs> <laughs> the phrase malingerer yes. just makes me think of Tony Hancock alright okay um, because when he's thinking he's, he's suffering from yeah. Um But yeah, so the policeman calls on Mrs Bingham, who is Bill Fraser's wife. Miss, Mrs. Mrs, yes. Um, and Hartnell's on the sofa covered in a...
1: Tartan blanket.
0: A t- he asked for a tartan blanket and he got both, yeah. That's an old Barry Cryer joke.
1: Okay.
0: Um, so sh- they take her prints.
1: Yeah.
0: And then they take Hartnell's prints. Mm-hmm. Bill Fraser's sort of... Is he in the is he in the bog he's, looking no, in? No, I think
1: he's just in another room. I don't think it's the bathroom. I yeah. think it's like the dining room. It's not an something. ensuite, is it? No. Don't be silly.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they the, the prints eventually match, don't they?
1: Well, no, the prints they take don't match the hospital, but they do match the factory Factory ones. Yes. That's
0: right. Yes. So, um, so off they toddle to the house because they realise like Hart had one glove
6: off.
1: Yeah.
0: He's, he's touched yeah. stuff. So, every, everybody's really a bit rubbish at this. They certainly. are,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. They go in wearing gloves and then after a while they get hot and take them off. Like you do. Like you do, yeah.
0: So, they'll come looking here, realises Bill Fraser.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, the police arrive. Uh, And
1: leave the car in the middle of the road.
0: Yeah. So Bill Fraser legs it to the garage, doesn't he? Yes, he he
1: goes to the garage.
0: Gets in his car and smashes through the doors. Yeah,
1: making as much noise as possible. Why didn't he open the garage doors quietly? And there's
0: about three policemen outside. Yeah. And you said it turns into real keystone cops. Yeah, because they
1: all sort of have to leap out of the way. One
0: puts his hands up in the hope that that will stop Bill Fraser. (laughs) But no. So, yeah, they they get the bell out now, don't Mm -hmm. they? And go ding-a-ling-a-ling. And then there's a the random jumping man. Is he yeah. coming out of a pub or it's something? He's
1: coming. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah Bill
0: Fraser yeah, he gets it. Yeah, and he, he does a real run proper.
1: Back.
0: Bouncy leap, doesn't he? But yeah. then, then the police car goes past, and he's learnt his lesson. Yes, he, he stands
1: and waits. Yeah
0: so bill fraser drives off down to some some random quarry doesn't he i don't know where he thinks he's gonna go i
1: think he just panics he's gonna um... hide
0: under some gravel or something (laughs) have his little 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 eyes just looking over the top like a cartoon so he reaches for his gun doesn't he he does and Robert Beattie throws a small handful of gravel at him in his face and and then dives at him. Which overpowers him.
1: No, and then dives at him and then they roll down the hill.
0: In in pure action by Havoc. Which I assume
1: is stuntmen because it's shot from quite a distance Yeah, and there's dust.
0: Yeah, but then the man on the harmonica's come come along for the ride because he starts up again, doesn't he? He does. Um, Come on you, let's go. Yeah. And then cut to um, Robert Beatty and his mate standing outside a well, sort of a, a fire, isn't yeah, it? It's a, like furnace. a furnace, I guess. Yeah. And they're burning twenty four thousand nine hundred ninety nine sets of prints. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, technically, they're burning ninety eight because they need the Hartnell's prints and they need Bill Fraser's prints, and they probably so actually ninety seven. Yes, yes, I, yes, I know, I know. Well. Yeah, I know
0: the, the sums don't quite make sense, mm. but they go on about. Um, Oh, they were glad for the public cooperation as without it, any police force is licked. And then you get a bit more harmonica. Harmonica, (laughs) There you go. But I think that was quite fun,
1: don't you? It is, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely not to be taken um, seriously. It's, you know, it's just a bit of sort of
0: But you like these sort of late late 50s ones, don't you? Because you were saying about Scotland Yard as well. Yes, yes. Because... one one of those we watched had John LeMage in, didn't they? It did. Yeah.
1: It did. Actually doing some proper acting, yeah. so.
0: But let's uh, briefly look at the other ones we've got. Uh-huh. Um, so we've got Robbery with Violence. Yes. Uh, I just want to see if the dates match on this one now. Let's have a look. Robert Beatty stars as Detective Inspector Maguire, a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. See, he was mounted. Well,
1: yeah, that's what the force is called. Yeah. Doesn't mean that every single does He doesn't he,
0: doesn't. he doesn't. He doesn't
1: like. No. He didn't turn up in a red red coat and a funny hat, <laughs> funny and
0: hat. a
1: horse. No. I mean, that would be good, but yeah.
0: Maguire struggles to find leads as he investigates an armed robbery on a.
1: Pawn shop. <laughs> porn,
0: I nearly said prawn shop. A pawn shop, shop in which a passerby was shot and killed.
1: Yeah, and that one's quite... It, they actually film on a proper street for that one. Yeah,
0: that's written by Peter Yeldham, Alvin R- Rakoff directing. Got Philip Latham in it. Yes. Where was the location of that, you said?
1: They film on a street for the bits where the robbers escape. And there are people sort of watching in the background.
0: So, I mean, it's interesting with a lot of these... How much you just get the general public lurking and, yeah, and, and watching. Yeah. Yeah. So another one we've got is Death Ride. Yeah. James Armstrong is suspected of murdering his nagging wife. Maguire is put on the case, but during his investigation, someone tries to run him over.
1: Yeah. That's not what I would have based that episode around, because that's one small scene.
0: Yeah. Patrick Barr and Clive Morton are in there. Yes. Isn't Clive Morton the
1: Clive Morton's the murderer. Yeah. Yeah. He basically tampers with the brakes on the car because his wife drives too fast anyway. <laughs> um and she she sort of goes around the corner and and it, it, the car crashes. Yeah. But he's he's going to run off with his secretary and then there's this bit towards the end where cuz he's got a motor launch which is he's, he's going to escape on. But his secretary's got too much too much luggage and he's like, <laughs> leave the luggage. And then he le- He ends up leaving her and going off on his motor launch. And then I think he ends up falling well, off the boat. Then he falls off and drowns. No, he doesn't sort of. drown, I don't think. He's sort of floating around with his, <laughs> his life jacket on or whatever. But yeah, It's extremely
4: odd.
0: <laughs> and then the other one we've got, a crook is caught smuggling counterfeiting plates into the country. Maguire sees an opportunity to catch the entire gang.
1: Yeah, that one actually finishes up at Battersea Fairground.
0: Because C- doesn't he try and pass himself off as a. Yeah, what a he does is something? he.
1: Because the guy that comes in is American, mm. and because he's Canadian and nobody can tell the difference between Americans and Canadians, he basically takes his place and takes the counterfeiting plates to the gang and, to try and catch them. But then they get a call from from the guy that sent him from New York, and it all goes a little bit. Yeah, they realise that but, he's not him. But yeah, yeah, you
0: said you said there's some nice filming, isn't there? Yeah, the I mean,
1: it all, it all ends up at Battersea Fair. And um, they
0: go on some rides. And they don't They go on they? some
1: rides, and yeah, and it's yeah, it's, and it's extraordinary because <laughs> there are people there. They, they obviously haven't closed it off they've yeah. done it while it's open and it's... but
0: yeah i mean it's difficult to film at places like that because there's that Z cars at the fair as well isn't it yeah but yeah it's interesting why you, when you try and do those those sort of things
1: yeah because you have to work around the general public because yeah. normally you don't have the resources to shut the area off so mm. and also it makes it look more normal if there are people around and they're not you don't have to pay them so
0: that's the four episodes we've got yes but When's the whole lot coming out? Uh,
1: the in- box set of the entire series is coming out on, I think it's the 26th of April. Oh, from Network. It, it's all I have already pre-ordered it. Yeah. Um, and we we will actually be able to find out a bit more when things were shown because obviously Network releases always say when the episode was transmitted. Mm. So it will give you more information than you have now.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, just looking at the sort of guest cast list, there's some very good names in there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite looking forward to this. I mean, yeah, they're they're, they're quite quick and cheerful.
1: Yes, they're about sort of twenty five minutes long. Yeah, so.
0: they don't they don't outstay their welcome. No. That's the thing. I mean, yeah, they're perhaps not the most hard hitting of things. Maybe, no,
1: but they do deal with serious subjects. Yeah, because the the, one, the robbery with violence one, it's just a random passer by who tries to help and hmm. he get he ends up getting killed. Yeah. So there are, there are. I mean, it's not really grim, but there are bits of it that you know are quite. Um, serious and I just think it's really interesting because it gives you a chance to look at a world that no longer exists yes the sort of how many people are out in the streets and how many cars are there because the thing about Scotland Yard is that that which is about the same time slightly earlier in fact sometimes when they're driving around it's amazing how few cars there are on the road yeah it's
0: all very quiet isn't it Yeah.
1: yeah and you know it's such a big difference to now so yeah it's just it's in a way, it's almost a historical drama because mm. it's it's showing you something that, as I say, that is no longer there. Yeah,
0: that's true. How how things that were once contemporary now become yeah. historical documents. So yeah, but there you go. There's nine nine nine. So there we are. That's the episode in the can. Mm-hmm. So we we'll say thank you very much
1: for listening again. Yes. Hope we'll, you've enjoyed it.
0: We'll be back again with episode 59.
1: Yes, we're getting purposely close to 60. Oh, the big
0: 60. Yes. Oh dear, I better think about that soon
1: then. Yes. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. episode 58 of Round the Archives.
0: Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Bob Fisher, Andrew T. Smith, Warren Cummings, Nick Goodman and Paul Chandler.
1: On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler.
0: The script for Dial 999 50,000 Hands was by Ian Greaves.
1: In charge of production was Harry Allen Towers.
0: Right, so that's the episode finished yes and there's a fair bit in the can mm-hmm. already for forthcoming stuff yes i'll do that again because that was awful mm. and i was grumbling <laughs> many thanks to the summer winos for yes, that and
1: it's a, it's a very good book it's highly recommended well i've
0: been in the bath with it several times okay. which is always a good sign of quality yes in fact it's even encouraged me to start reading the uh last of the summer wine novel the moon Be- <coughs>
2: ah, do that again Is that all right do you reckon uh, i think so yeah we're not gonna do that any better are we no <laughs>